The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So welcome, welcome everybody. So before I start, I have two announcements, but it sounds like the volume is a little bit high. Thank you, Jim. If we can turn it down. There we go. Thank you. Otherwise, I yeah, I end up doing something weird with my voice if uh, I feel like the volume is a little bit off. Two announcements. Um, there will not be a gathering on December 25th, Monday night, December 25th. We will not have something here. And the next week, January 1, I'm going to change the time a little bit. I'm going to have us start 15 minutes earlier, so at 7.15, and end at 8.30. So the meditation will be 30 minutes. It'll be longer, I'm sorry, shorter, and so that, uh, and then the Dharma talk will be the same. 7.15 to 8.30, just so the night ends a little bit earlier. So those are my kind of like two announcements. I guess we have a few more Mondays with the regular schedule, and then uh, January 1 will be the new schedule. I'll try to remember to make sure that that's, the calendar will be changed. I'll try to remember to make sure that the website gets changed too. I mean that there's a notice. But if you end up showing up at 8, 7.30, that'll be okay too. Okay, so today I wanted to talk a little bit about like, what are some of the supports for practice or what are like some of the fuel for practice or what are some of the nourishments for practice, we might say. No matter what, however we define practice, whether it's uh, meditation, mindfulness practice, or loving kindness practice, or concentration practice, or practicing with ethical behavior, or practicing generosity and compassion, you know, whatever whatever we have as a practice, or whatever we define our practice as, the truth is. It's not like we always, every day, all the time, feel motivated to do this, right? Of course not. We're not machines. We're humans. But what are some of the things that can be a support for us? I know sometimes, like, out there in the greater world, they talk about, well, remember your why, like, you know, why you're doing something. Okay, so that can help. But maybe there's a little bit more... uh, detail or something more that we can add here. And so in the suttas, there are a number of things that are a support for practice. And it's not formalized as a list. Instead, I kind of like pulled things out of some other lists and some um, other teachings and kind of like am gathering them here today, just as something that might be a resource or something to think about. Like, what is the most meaningful for you? Like maybe there's something I'm going to talk about that really will be a support for your practice. You know, maybe not all of them will be. Maybe you'll feel inspired or motivated, and maybe you won't. But the objective is I just wanted to offer something to consider. So one thing that's kind of interesting to this, like some of these supports to practice are often related to 
what brought us to the practice to begin with. In some ways, this is kind of like, you know, remembering your why. Like, why are you doing this? But there's something, um, the reasons that bring us to the path are very often kind of like smaller. They're like a, they're not as uh, vibrant, they're not as compelling, they're not as provocative as what supports us or as what propels us on the path. And I'd like to talk about that a little bit more, but because part of what uh, really supports practice is connected to maybe some like some deep, um, deep longings or deep questions that we have that we might not even know that we have until after some practice. Maybe there's a way in which we start to maybe see some benefits or we notice that as the mind starts to settle down, it touches into some other things that uh, we didn't even know were there. Or There's a way that... uh, something that's maybe deep or really inside of us can be a support for practice. And um, maybe there's this way also of kind of practice is uh, this opening up of what's possible. Maybe we used to think like, okay, yeah, I'm going to start meditation because I'm a person who has a lot of anxiety. I'm just going to bring this up. But then as we start to practice, we start to realize, oh, yes, I have anxiety, but yes, I have care for other people. And yes, uh, I also have some warmth and I'm able to develop that. Or So our ideas about ourself grows and also our ideas about what the practice can offer grows. So with that as an introduction, I'll introduce uh, one of these first uh, qualities. The Pali word is samvega, and it's often translated as a sense of urgency, like a sense of, yeah, this is something I really want to do, and I'm going to get with it. I'm going to do this. And some of you may know, maybe all of you know about this story of the Buddha when he, the Buddha-to-be, before he was the Buddha, when he was just like us, uh, he was uh, he encountered after having this opulent lifestyle filled with you know every pleasures known at that time, he encountered sickness, old age, and death, which because uh, just the circumstances of his life that they he had been pretty much sheltered from, maybe in some of the ways in which we often are sheltered from this sickness and death, right? Often that we don't have encountering dead people or dying people, unless they're our immediate family or something like this, right? It's not something that's really part of a popular culture. So the Buddha-to-be, that we would call him a bodhisattva at this time before he's a Buddha, he encounters old age, sickness, and death, and it's like, wow, this is awful. <laughs> Is there a way that we can get around this? I don't want this. And of course, isn't. It's one of the truths about uh, the human experience. And so this is what spurred him on to practice. Some of you might know that he left his life as the 
palace he lived in and became an ascetic. He went from one extreme to the other and practiced for many years before becoming awakened. But whether for us it might be something like sickness, old age, and death, but maybe there's something that there's a tragedy in our life or a loss in our life. It could be with health or a loss of a loved one or a relationship or whatever it might be, some sense of real deep uh, grief and sense of loss. And maybe we start to feel disoriented and losing the meaning that we had of our life or what we thought what a good life should have or how am I going to make my life work now that there's been this tragedy or loss. So there's a sense of like, okay, well, I think uh, a spiritual practice might you know, be a support for this. Or maybe even the loss isn't something about health or relationship. Maybe it's something about an existential crisis. Something about, what is life about? Is this all there is? Is is there anything more? I thought it was going to be better. Here I am at this age, and what? You know, it's still so much work. Or I, I don't know, there's so many different ways that we might think about this. What comes to my mind, right? There's a reason why people in the middle of their life buy sports cars or, you know, do something different is because they're thinking like, yeah, I I was kind of hoping there'd be something more. So maybe sense of urgency is, maybe that's not a good translation, but this sense of this wish for more and and maybe a belief that there can be more. It's got to be something richer or fuller or more satisfying. Some vega. And so Tonjev Tanisarobiku, he uh, has this definition for some vega. That he says it's this sense of dismay or a sense of alienation that comes with realizing like, is this really what life is about? And then coupled with that is this maybe a sense of... uh, complacency or foolishness like oh I've been following this path I've been organizing this my life in a way that um, my community society supports but it didn't lead to where I thought it was I followed all the rules I you know did what society expected of me and yet my life isn't turning out the way that I thought so some vega sometimes a sense of urgency Chanda is, this, is another Pali word, often gets translated as enthusiasm or zeal. I like this word, zeal. Enthusiasm is a good word too, but um, it comes from, it's an off, not, this isn't the only place it gets described, but uh, in one of the suttas it gets described as um, uh, the Buddha is instructing, like, okay, how can you find a way to freedom, to nibbana, to awakening? And he gives this long, detailed list of steps you can do. And it starts with um, finding what you th- somebody who you think could be a teacher and evaluating them. Do they have qualities or do they behave in such a way that seems to like promote a sense of greed, hatred, and delusion? 
If so, they're not a good teacher. But do they seem to not be promoting greed, hatred, and delusion? Then they could be a good teacher. So this real thing, you know, don't believe everybody, but to evaluate them and to give particular criteria. And you're welcome to do that with me. Do I have greed, hatred, and delusion? I'm not perfect, right? I'm not a completely awakened person. But So then they say that, okay, so if you find that there's somebody that is not promoting greed, hatred, and delusion, then um, go to listen to their teachings and reflect on their meaning and only accept them after consideration. So not only just believe everything the teacher says, but to reflect on them and uh, accept them after consideration. And then, they says here, it's just natural that some enthusiasm or some zeal springs up that like this, like, okay, I hear somebody who's talking about something that makes sense to me. I think there's a, um, a willingness to engage with the teachings, a willingness to um, put them into practice, to try them out. Right, ehi pasiko is like this key teaching. Come and see, and so part of this, the teacher is like, "Well, come and see. Here's uh, what the teachings are." And so this enthusiasm, like, "Okay, I don't have to just believe it and you know just do what's being told to me, but there's a way. Um, I want to try this out. I do want to see for myself what's being described." So maybe there's a way that something just makes sense to us by what the teacher is saying. Like, oh, yeah. And I'll say for me, personally, when I first heard the Four Noble Truths, which was, very surprisingly, was during a yoga class. I didn't wasn't seeking some Dharma teachings. They were, in my view at the time, they were... Uh, what's the word? Like they were like forced on me. They were pushed, put on me. I thought I was going to be taking a yoga class. <laughs> they were <laughs> this little dharma talk got put in there. But wow, when they talked about the four noble truths, like there is suffering, there is a cause of suffering, and there's the ending of suffering, and a way to the end of suffering. It meant a lot to me. It meant like, oh yeah, this is something I really want to pursue, to look at and explore. And for me. If that was, uh, I had some real enthusiasm and zeal from what I had heard. I didn't really know that teacher, didn't have an opportunity really to examine or investigate them. But uh, that just that's hearing something that made sense to me kind of had this zeal show up. So maybe that's something also that can be a support. Maybe there's a um, a way that can keep in like what what brought you to the practice and maybe even like some of the deeper aspects of it can be a support for practice to touch into that here's a a third thing that can be a support for practice the Pali word is dasana this means uh, like vision or seeing I guess literally it would be seeing sometimes translated as vision but more specifically, this vision or scene of what's possible. It's not unusual for people to, maybe when they were younger or maybe even just recently, they had a sense of 
what is possible. Sometimes this is they have an extreme experience. Tragedy or um, like near drowning or, you know, something like this. I've heard of this or some uh, real severe uh, accidents or psychedelics, let's be honest. <laughs> some people do psychedelics and uh, this practice was started, you know, and it's not an accident that the, the founder, people who brought this back from Asia, I think the reason why they went to Asia back in the 60s is because they had their own psychedelic experiences. So there's people who have this touch into this view, this idea like, oh, there's more to this world. There's something else. And they want to do a meditation practice as a way to touch into or see or experience that again. Or maybe sometimes just people will have meditative experiences that they try to, you know, touch into before. I, I This is very, very common. <laughs> people like, oh yeah, there was that time that it was so blissful and happy. Okay, I gotta do it again. And I was, let's see, what shirt was I wearing when I did that? And what breakfast did I have? And, you know, we'll do everything we can. And I have certainly done my share of that too. Trying to like recreate some fabulous experiences which, by the way, never works. <laughs> Just, but you won't know that until you try it, so it doesn't matter that I said this. Because what happens, right, as soon as we enter this, we do this, like, oh, I want this again. Just that wanting is prevents it from happening. So, just... Uh, heads up about that, not to be disappointed if uh, you don't immediately have those experiences again. In fact, I think uh, I heard this as a Dharma talk. Um, I can see the name of the Dharma teacher. His name now just right left my... um, Steve Armstrong. I heard him say this one time. He said, uh, during a meditation retreat, he said, there's nothing that ruins your whole day more than a really good sit first thing in the morning. Because <laughs> then you're just, you know, trying to have it again or something like this. So. But Dasana, this vision of what's possible and wanting to maybe like, oh yeah, even knowing that there's a different way of viewing or experiencing the world or just having a really pleasant, peaceful, expansive, spacious experience where the suffering is um, drifted away. And and it is true, there are bliss states too. And so maybe you've had something like that. I've had like just tears of happiness. This is usually arises more on the longer retreats when you have time to really sink in. But that's was quite something to just feeling like, yeah, just just tears, just lots of the, just so beautiful, nothing but tears. So dasana is another thing that might be a support for practice. And so another one is this uh, Pali word nibida, and this often gets translated as disenchantment. And sometimes when uh, people hear some Buddhist teacher talking about disenchantment, and what they kind of hear is like discouragement. But it's not about discouragement at all. In fact, it, um, 
it follows, it's in this liberative, dependent, arising, in this uh, stepwise um, list of freedom. It follows um, samadhi, which is a kind of like a collectedness of the mind and a settledness of the mind. That after samadhi is seeing things as they are, yata, buddha, jnana, dasana. And then uh, then there's this nibbida, this disenchantment. So seeing things as they are, that leads to this disenchantment. So this is what, what's um, being pointed to, is that we see things that don't bring us the happiness that we thought they were going to bring. That uh, seeing things that as soon everything will be I'll be happy as soon as I get this as soon as I graduate as soon as I get promoted as soon as I get that better job have the perfect relationship as soon as my partner stops doing this as soon as my partner starts doing this you know these types of things right and then we realize, well, then maybe some of those things actually do happen. Maybe we do graduate, get a job, our partner changes, we change, lose weight, whatever it is. Maybe those things happen. And then we realize, oh, <laughs> I'm not as happy as I thought I was going to be. Right? This is very, this isn't an uncommon thing. We have a, very powerful industries to enchant us, right? Advertising, right? Madison Avenue, right? Is all about telling us, you'll be happy, buy this, look like that, do this. Or now we have, uh, you know, these little electronic computers that we carry in our pockets, like, uh, who, who cares if you're not happy? Here, distract yourself. This will be your, you know, something that'll make you happy happy enough or something like this. So disenchantment is this no longer believing, oh yeah, this really isn't going to be a lasting source of happiness like I thought it was. So it's like no longer being under this spell you're no longer enchanted by, no longer under this spell of believing that something else is going to solve all your problems, something in the future, because that sets up this seeking mind. Everything, everything's going to be better later. So, what, something's going to be different later. And then there's a way in which we can just create our life is all about seeking. Whereas this practice is pointing to no, it's about kind of like finding here in this moment, this experience. So disenchantment is maybe also kind of like the way that we, not, on, no, not only are we um, no longer under this spell, but maybe there's a way in which we kind of like outgrow some ideas too. In the same way that a snake outgrows its skin, sheds its skin as it's growing, maybe we like shed some enchantments as uh, our practice grows and matures. Maybe no longer thinking that just pursuing pleasure, just, you know, a measure of our life is how many pleasurable experiences we can have or chasing status or more and more money. 
And it's often the case that we, it's not until we have a little bit of something, um, maybe we do get a little bit more money compared to earlier in life, or maybe, you know, we have a little bit more status or whatever it is, a little bit more pleasure. It's often not until we've achieved or attained some of these things that we actually realize, oh, that didn't make me as happy. It wasn't as satisfying as I thought it was going to be. Or maybe even this idea of the kind of like the other side of maybe there's this realizing that worrying something doesn't actually help and it uh, makes us feel kind of awful. This, you know, this little bit of anxiety. So no longer under this spell of thinking that worrying or, um, yeah, nagging ourselves or nagging others or something like that. So nibida, disenchantment, something that is, can be a support for practice is realizing, you know what, all these other things aren't what I thought they were going to be. Maybe there's this practice is something that can really support this greater sense of well-being and freedom. And another one is compassion. Pali can be karuna and or anukampa. So compassion is this, where this wish that we want to do something for the world. We see all the suffering and we want to do something to end the suffering, whether it's in ourselves or others. One way to that compassion gets described as it's this uh, warm heart, this loving heart, this uh, loving kindness, this respect, warmth, care that uh, kind of like radiates out. And when it's radiating out, it, it encounters people who are having difficulties. Of course it does, because there's a lot of people having difficulties, including ourselves. And so this kind of like this kindness, this warm-heartedness, when it meets difficulties, it turns into compassion. So it's this uh, born out of uh, warmth, and it's a wish for suffering to end. So that's compassion, karuna, and anukampa. It's also kind of related to this idea of this urge to maybe understand suffering is stronger than this urge to just always avoid it. Maybe it's like, what's going on here that's underneath the suffering so that I can really help alleviate it for others and for ourselves? For some people, this can be a real, you know, driver for practice. You know, this is seeing like it doesn't, right? It's it's uh, we see it all the time. It's not like it's hidden. <laughs> uh, the difficulties of the world, right? There's a whole other industry that makes sure that we can see all the suffering that everybody's having, right? The media industry is all about this too, highlighting everything that's awful. Maybe I should be a little more kind in my assessment, but sometimes it feels like this. So here's a um, a short verse that kind of like um, 
talks about also this is the Buddha before he was awakened. There's a verse that describes something like what happened when um, he was encountering some suffering. So this is written um, in the first person. So again, this is the Buddha before he was awakened, when he was a bodhisattva. Just look at people and their quarrels. I will speak of my dismay and the way that I was shaken seeing people thrashing about like fish and little water. Seeing them in conflict with each other, I became afraid. I felt discontent at seeing only conflict to the very end. Then I saw an arrow here, hard to see, embedded in the heart. Pierced by this arrow, people dash about in all directions. But when the arrow's pulled out, they don't run and they don't sink. So he was seeing difficulties out there, like conflict everybody was had, and he was shaking, feeling uncomfortable. And this kind of, and he said, "I felt discontent. Then I saw an arrow here, in the heart, kind of like noticing. Okay, there's what in his heart is, is what he has is what other people have, and was kind of like underlying this discontent, this." conflict, the suffering. So in some ways this is kind of like about compassion too, like feeling, seeing the difficulties and this wish to want the difficulties to end. And part of that way that difficulties end is that we see how we are contributing. Like how, how does, what, how we are help us understand how humans are in general. And maybe there's something if we can show up in a different way, then other people can be touched by that. They are touched by that. We all know this when we've been around somebody who has some calm or ease or warm-heartedness when there's a lot of difficulties. It makes a difference. It does make a difference, even in small ways. And maybe I'll just share. There was a time early in my practice when I was a chaplain at uh, San Francisco General Hospital. For those of you who don't know, like San Francisco General is like a county hospital. There's like this is where there's a lot of suffering there. I'll just say that there's a lot of suffering, and um, it was quite something for me to you know show up in hospital rooms. Um, you know, wanting to just, you know, really kind of my role as a chaplain was just to provide an ear for people who wanted to talk. It's hard when you're in the hospital. And uh, so I was in part of my training to be chaplain. I uh, appreciated so much what one person said. said, sometimes your job is to just get thrown out of the room. <laughs> Because they can't throw anybody out. These poor people, right? They're getting woken up in the middle of the night. Here, let's take your temperature. Let's take some blood. Or, you know, all these things. They don't get any control out of this. But at least the chaplain, they they can throw out of the room. And they can feel like they have some agency. And some, so I, I kind of liked that too. It's like, not like I had to provide anything in particular necessarily. Just this idea of, you know, wanting to alleviate suffering, 
for others and maybe there's all kinds of different ways that it supports practice but for me when I wasn't thrown out of the room you know it was a practice to be able to uh, stay steady and balanced with uh, encountering really uh, the type of suffering that I hadn't seen in my kind of life you know some of these people didn't have homes they you know had uh, addictions and they had uh, mental illness and it was you know just a lot of suffering and so for me that really supported me like okay I wanted to be able to show up with warmth and openness and spaciousness that required that I it's like I have a meditation practice to touch into some of the stillness and touch into some equanimity. So here are some of these things. I just wanted to offer kind of like this list of things as support for practice. This isn't like a usual list, but maybe there was something here that can support you like as a nourishment for practice. So the, this list, let's see, I started with uh, some vega, this sense of urgency. Then chanda, enthusiasm or zeal, often after hearing teachings. And the sense of urgency is um, often when there's a tragedy or loss. A vision of what's possible, dasana, having touched into or seen or sensed. I remember uh, in some practice discussion, I was saying to the teacher when I was on a retreat, yeah, I can like, smell that there's more freedom available. Like I just had this sense. Dasana is uh, literally seeing, but there's a way like we can feel like, yeah, I can see how this direction of the mind settling down and the heart and mind opening can continue. Even though I don't quite maybe haven't experienced it, I have this sense that it's available. So that could be dasana. And that nibbida, this uh, disenchantment, maybe it's like, well, all the things that I thought was going to make me happy or was going to work didn't. So maybe this is something I'm going to do here. And this, um, I should say, this disenchantment um, is, comes right after that is uh, viraga, which is... Um, like no longer seeing through colored lenses or a way of, um, sometimes it gets translated as, yeah, actually I'm not going to go down that route. I'll just say disenchantment. No longer being under the spell of things. And then compassion, anukampa or karuna, you know, this wish to each, each suffering. Again, suffering of others or ourselves. Those are some of the things that can be a nourishment for practice, that can help support our practice. And you'll notice that the things that I described here, that are things that are often just arise naturally through our life experiences. And sometimes we might be dismissive of them, but just noticing some of these things that arise and maybe we can bring them to mind as a support for practice. So I'll end there. And-
and open it up and see if there are any some questions or comments uh, about what I've shared tonight. Could you please read the arrow poem again? Yeah. I'll just say for... um, this is my own translation, so you'll find, if you look at it, you'll find something a little bit different. This is just Sutta Napata 4.15. Just look at people and their quarrels. I will speak of my dismay and the way that I was shaking, shaken, seeing people thrashing about like fish in little water. Seeing them in conflict with each other, I became afraid. I felt discontent at seeing only conflict to the very end. Then I saw an arrow here, hard to see, embedded in the heart. Pierced by this arrow, people dash about in all directions. When the arrow is pulled out, they don't run and they don't sink. I've kind of like this idea of people dashed about in all directions. Right? This is what we do, like fish in little water, right? We, when there's difficulties, we kind of flail around and dash about, you know. Maybe it's not the most smooth or elegant that we can be. Yeah. Yes, but this is before he was the Buddha, but it's in the suttas. It's uh, Sutta Napata 4.15. Yeah, but before he was awakened. Anybody else have a comment or question? Um, The poem really strikes a chord for me right now. Um, it's, It's actually kind of uh, crazy what a synchronicity this is because um, I uh, got involved in labor organizing a few years ago and was kind of processing my experience with a friend recently and said like, you know, it was like an arrow went through my heart when I started engaging in organizing. Um, and, you know, it's it's been a big experience and a big chapter of my life, but um, got myself into some... Uh, novice trouble with, I think anybody who's engaged in organizing probably knows how complicated and and difficult and at times, um, you know, I would even say traumatizing organizational change can can be. Um, But since I've started coming to IMC and and practicing and going to therapy and doing these things for for personal growth, it, it is kind of like I can just rest in solidarity with others and and bring that kind of like warm expansiveness into spaces like that that, that you were describing. So um, yeah, I'm grateful to IMC and thank you for sharing the poem. Fantastic, <laughs> fantastic. Thank you for sharing that. That's really great. I love to hear that. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Um. Since in the quote he does mention that he saw the arrow and when the arrow is removed, you know, people don't sink, he says the quote. So is it fair to assess that the Buddha already had 
some level of attainment when he said this because he was not enlightened, but he was still saying something pretty insightful, right? So is, it, is that coming from such a place? It doesn't feel like a novice saying it, right? So, he, But he was saying it before he was enlightened and it still strikes a chord as powerful as something that he would say after. You know the point I'm making? So it feels like... So is he have some level of attainment? Is he? Not? Yeah, it feels like, because he's not enlightened, but it really strikes a chord for me still. Like all the other suttas, I'm like, boom, it's like a bomb. Okay, I get it. Here, he's not enlightened and still really powerful. So that difference is kind of jarring for me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, um, the, the context of this poem is never said in the suttas. It's it's part of a collection of poems that uh, none of the poems have their context stated. Wait, so... Yeah, that's right. So, I don't know. I can't answer that question. But I think uh, all of us can relate to this, though, right? That where we do see the uh, arrows in our heart. I, I gave a Dharma talk on this, uh, um, on this um, poem... Maybe I'll kind of dig that up and uh, kind of flesh it out and do something again. Yeah, Phil's, Phil's nodding his head. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because <laughs> I love this one too. It's really, it's a really powerful one, just as you said. Yeah. Yeah. yeah for some reason, uh, when you said that, the image of a, a crosswalk in New York <laughs> showed up. You know, in crosswalk, our people are running helter skelter in, yeah. in New York, like a New York mindset. Yeah. And everybody struggles with it, but the image of that sort of came up. You know? Yeah. Okay. Are there any more comments? Yes. Okay. Put the mic. Evening. So I want to circle back to the poem again. I guess we never left it, so no need to circle back. But so the fish in little water. I'm sort of picturing like a a fish that's been flung into the bottom of the boat or something. It's like it's flailing oh. around trying to get find bigger water somewhere. I don't know where that leads, but when you say the, he sees the arrow here and you point to your chest and that's not the image that came to me at all. I just thought like, oh, there's an image on the, there's an arrow on the ground or it didn't seem like it was necessarily. So the line is, then I saw an arrow here, hard to see embedded in the heart. Hmm. Okay. So that's that's why I was getting this embedded in the heart. Okay. Is that helpful? And well, when people have the arrow removed, they neither sink nor what is it rise or pierced by this arrow, people dash about in all directions. When the arrow is pulled out, they don't run and they don't sink. So dash about in all directions when they have it, but when they don't have it, they don't run and they don't sink. Yeah. So sink for me, this brings like you know you, you uh, cross over. To, yeah, maybe I'm getting. Um, you know, there's this idea that uh, you're on the near shore where there's all the difficulties, and then there's the far shore where there's no difficulties, and then there's water in between. And so you don't sink means that you can get across to where across there's to the other shore. Fear. Yes. Okay. But uh, do you want to say more about the fish thrashing about? You were thinking that it was in a boat, so like somebody. Well, that or cut. it's maybe the maybe. Um, the flood waters have receded, and now it's oh. where it's trapped. It's yeah, 
it's doomed ultimately, whatever. And they flop around. They try to yeah. go into search mode. They're looking for anything to escape. Yeah. Maybe there's a certain chaos too, right? It's not like they're organized flopping, like, okay, I'm going to go there. Right. They're just... Uh, <laughs> it's a random walk. So yeah, like random that. walk. Nice, <laughs> nice. <laughs> January will start 15 minutes earlier and end at 8.30. So 7.15 to 8.30. 30-minute meditation instead of 45. You can come earlier. I was thinking to myself, if it were up to me, or it is up to me, actually. But I was thinking that I think about it, right? I tell you, I like to do like an hour sit, but uh, I don't think anybody will come to that. I was thinking like, oh, maybe I'll uh, come early, you know, at 7 and start sitting at 7, so I could still have 45 minutes. So, I don't know. Can we go back to it in the spring, having a longer sit? Yeah, that's a good idea. I can't promise anything, but uh, okay. I, I think, yeah. Yes. Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. Can we have the, the mic? Um, so when, when you recited, one is that we're running around with the arrows... Um, and then the thrashing fish, so they're kind of like headless chickens to me. Um, can you hear me now? <laughs> yeah. She was just talking about uh, fish thrashing about people when they have their arrow or dashing about uh, kind of like chickens without their heads. Yeah, so yeah. It's kind of this similar uh, sense. Yeah. yeah, and it's very interesting that you, you pointed to the distance between um, a very active, turbulent place versus one that is not. But I think I kept wondering, how does one get the arrow out? It's like a thorn, right? You take the thorn out and there's relief. Yeah. And I was curious about that. So. Like how one gets yeah. the... Yeah. And I would say that's what practice is about. So our meditation practice, loving kindness practice, generosity, ethical behavior, all this kind of stuff takes the thorn out. Then our whole mind, mind just starts to settle down. Thank you. You're welcome. Okay, so that's the end this evening. So I wish you all uh, safe travels home and a lovely rest of the evening. Thank you. And if you'd like, you're welcome to come up here and ask some questions or say something more.